When the nearly endless debates over the debt ceiling were raging on, the United States didn't look very businesslike to the rest of the world. Internally, though, you never stop hearing that federal agencies should operate more like a business. This is both true and not true, according to my next guest. Commentary now from American University professor Bob Tobias. Somehow at these times when things are stressful on the political front or whatever, people turn to federal agencies like the IRS, for example, and it should be like a business or it has too much money or this, that or the other. Your thoughts? Well, Tom, you know... We hear often, as you suggest, that we should run the government like a business that's both entrepreneurial, that's willing to challenge itself to change, and most importantly, measure its result. But from my perspective, the same people who make that challenge make achieving that challenge difficult, if not impossible. And I say this because a business can calculate its revenue and can plan its spending before the beginning of each year. Now, the budget year for agencies is October 1, but Congress has completed its agency appropriation process on October 1 just four times in the last 40 years, and the last time was in 1996. And what that means is that the agency has planned its spending over a 12-month period and gets maybe 11 or 10 or nine months to spend. So it has to rearrange everything, rush much, and from my perspective, achieve much less because of this failure to provide money on time. Yes, and there's a corollary there because when you don't have the money, you can't initiate any new programs for the most part under continuing resolutions. So that compresses not only the spending time, but in the time you would have to execute something that you planned to have a year to execute, you may have six months to do it. Well, that's true, Tom. And it makes it even more difficult because most appropriations are only for one year. So if you don't spend it by the end of the year, if you don't plan to spend it by the end of the year, you lose it and it goes back to the treasury. You know, this year is no different. The agencies have submitted their 2024 budgets, and the debt ceiling deal says now, for sure, every single budget is going to be cut by 1%. But as soon as the ink was dry on the debt ceiling deal, Congress said, well, no, we didn't really mean 1%. It could be much more than 1%. And by the by, we're thinking about shutdowns. So again, there's such uncertainty And also, when you think about run it like a business, no business that was facing a budget cut would do across-the-board spending cuts. They would spend less on those who are less efficient and more on those who are more efficient. But in today's budget climate, across the board, except for VA and DOD, implementing the number one charge from Congress about agency is innovate, buy more technology, implement more technology. But think about that, Tom. If I'm going to define what I need, if I'm going to bid, if I'm going to then decide, and then I'm going to implement, I can't get that done in a year. I just can't get it done in a year. So if in year one, I have $100, and in year two, I only have 90 I have to make a choice. Do I continue with this this technology or do I let it fail and, and call it all off? 
it's easier for an agency not to do large technology reforms because of the uncertainty of the budget process. Running the government like a business is, I think, virtually impossible. And we can see the impact of budget uncertainty and its adverse impact if we look at the IRS. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. And yes, tell us more about your thoughts on the IRS, because so much of what people bring in their perception of how government ought to be, it all seems to come to bear in the crucible of the IRS sometimes. Yeah, I think that's right, Tom. Congress recently appropriated $100 billion, no small amount, over a 10-year period to increase IRS's technology, have better customer service, and to conduct more audits on those making more than $400,000 a year. The Congress also directed the IRS to develop and implement a free tax filing system, which would make tax filing free for those who have primarily W-2 income. It would be a tremendously valuable public service for those who make less and have the highest voluntary tax compliance rate. But during the recent debt ceiling deal, Congress cut IRS funds by $1.48 billion this year, and in 2024, $10 billion, and in 2025, another $10 billion, which in the first instance threatens the IRS ability to develop and implement the free tax filing system. But this series of events also reveals Congress doing exactly the opposite of what any private sector business, large or small, would do, and that is to cut its revenue source. A team of researchers at Harvard, the University of Sydney, and the Treasury Department looked at 710,000 tax returns over a 14-year period to determine the cost of conducting taxpayer audits and to determine the amounts taxpayers should have paid but didn't. So interestingly enough, they found that the bottom one half of taxpayers break even, the IRS breaks even when they're audited. So every dollar spent, the IRS gets nothing in return. But for the top 1%, the IRS got $3.18 back for every $1 spent And for the top tenth of 1%, the return is $6.29 for every dollar spent. But this report also did something that no one else has really done well, and that is to calculate the additional contribution that comes to the federal government from taxpayers who are audited. And they found that over the 14 years of the study, the additional tax paid by audited taxpayers, on average, was three times the revenue raised from the initial audit. And they found this impact to be exactly the same over every audited taxpayer. So audits, plus the deterrence effect for the top 10 of 1% of taxpayer, is a return of $12 for each dollar expended. So since the IRS is using the original $100 billion investment to focus only on those making more than $400,000 a year, which is close to the top percentile, the $20 billion cut in IRS funding is projected by this group to cost the federal government about $220 billion. $220 billion, who knows whether it's plus or minus $10 billion or $20 billion. But what's important is... 
who would leave the money on the table? No business would leave the money on the table. Well, yes. And maybe the bigger issue is if you had a tax code that was comprehensible and simple, which it's not, it's thousands of pages and people spend billions and billions and billions of man hours and dollars trying to interpret it, you know, through attorneys and so forth. If you had tax simplification, you would probably have instant better response and instant better compliance, which really less no, rests on Congress. No question about that. But that's not the game we're playing. The game we're playing are the hundreds of thousands of pages of tax law and an audit process that the IRS over the past few years is really broken. The point here, I think, is Congress cutting the ability of the IRS to conduct audits in this current environment, leaves revenue on the table, and is directly contrary to running the government as a business. All right. Well, we'll leave it there and uh, get a link to that report. Bob Tobias is a professor at the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. You're not emeritus yet. I am. <laughs> well, well, congratulations on that one. It's been a long Thank time you. coming. And uh, But we'll still have you on, and we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.